Welcome to Episode 5 of Battle Rhythm, the podcast of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Stenvi von Lecky will be joining me soon, but first I want to highlight what we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to start with a discussion between myself and Stephanie about things like Hong Kong, Sweden, and yes, Greenland. We will also discuss looking forward to the next semester coming up as classes start way too soon. We'll highlight what we are looking forward to, what we're not looking forward to, and then we'll respond to a question that asked us what would we assign as mandatory reading for all Canadians interested in defense and security stuff. Then we will have our graduate student segment with Alexander Salt of Calgary, who will tell us about his dissertation on whether, when, if the U.S. Armed Forces will be changing the organizations in reaction to the events on the battlefield of late. Our featured interview is with Chris Ankerson of NYU, who discusses how international order is actually kind of plastic, that once Trump leaves the scene, it may not bounce back quite the same way. And so today's common theme really will be adaptation and learning. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, and trying to figure out under what conditions do we see change. Thank you, and on to the show. Steve, how are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, I was kind of relieved this weekend that uh, the D&D and CAF have shown that they can learn lessons. They got in a lot of trouble, I guess, last spring when they opened up the memorial of the Cenotaph and the other items they had from Kandahar and actually Camp Mirage that memorialized those who were those who lost their lives in Kandahar. And they put it behind the wire at the new base out in the western part of Ottawa. And this weekend, they had an event on Saturday where they brought the families of those who are lost together. And it seems like the event went really well. I was glad to see that, too. And I would really like to go visit the memorial, but I hear it's a bit difficult to access. We have to make special arrangements. Yeah, the thing is, is that it's on the site of the new future headquarters of the of, the, of CF, which is a big campus that used to belong to Nortel. Uh, it's on a big campus out in the west behind a bunch of uh, fences. And so... I think the best way to access the memorial in the future will be when there are events like this weekend's to remember the events in Kandahar. I hope that uh, CAF and D&D put up a, a link on the website somewhere that shows people how they can possibly make arrangements to, to see it. Because when I was when I went to Afghanistan, I saw the memorials both in Kandahar and in Camp Mirage, and they were very moving. And I think that this is something that Canadians should get access to, but I understand that it's very difficult to make this work for everybody. Yeah, I've been told it's quite impressive. Uh, speaking of impressive, have you seen the protests in Hong Kong? Well, I've not seen the protests in Hong Kong, but I've been tracking <laughs> and they've been going on for, for two months, uh, first to manifest opposition to the extradition bill, but protests have broadened and now seem to include a broader range of, of grievances linked to democratic reform. Yeah, that's the nature of these things is that when you end up having some sort of protest movement that has any life of its own, it tends to accumulate, snowball and accumulate more grievances, more issues to protest around. And, and their, their, their abilities to sustain such large protests have been amazing. I, I've really been impressed. I'm worried. I think we're all worried about what China's going to do next. This does remind me of, of some basic ethnic conflict stuff, which is one of the sources of, of ethnic conflict is when governments take away autonomy. And this has been one of the challenges for not just Hong Kong, but Kashmir. India just revoked essentially most of Kashmir's autonomy, which means that 
Delhi, the capital of India, is now going to own every single event that happens in Kashmir, and uh, it's going to antagonize and has antagonized the people of Kashmir. So I'm seeing similar events in Kashmir and Hong Kong, um, but uh, I do fear more for Hong Kong, just given the scope of things and the, sort of a replay of Tiananmen Square. And there are a lot of Canadians in Hong Kong, uh, 300,000. I was surprised to see that number and also 500,000 people of Hong Kong descent in Canada. Yeah, and that, that I, people have been asking me, oh, well, what, what should Canada do about that? My first response to all this is that Canada has no role because it's it's just so far away and it's not we don't have any tools. But 300,000 uh, dual citizens in Hong Kong means that the prime minister has to speak out on this, and he has. Uh, that Canada has a role in it because job one of a government is to protect its citizens, whether they're home or abroad. Uh, so I think that's why Trudeau came out and t- talked about this because it's not like the, the Canadian-Chinese relationship needs any more um, obstacles or, or challenges. And that's pretty much all that can be done, I think, when it comes to uh, Canada statements expressing disappointment and looking after the welfare of Canadian citizens who might need assistance. Yeah, there's always a demand for more, more to more of something. But the something is, is is vague because it's not like we have a whole lot of tools. And, and the asymmetry between China and Canada has been proven over the past year that, that they could ramp up on their side escalation on economic sanctions or economic changes in their policies that hurt us in ways that we can't come close to matching. So they've stopped importing our canola oil. We have lots of other industries that sell stuff to China and they can easily be turned off. One of our points of vulnerability is, is us, actually, that one of the ways that Canadian uh, uh, universities have been able to pay the bills is by tuition by foreigners. And one group of foreigners who are paying the tuition bills uh, in in Canadian universities are Chinese. And if those folks stay home, suddenly across Canada, like across the United States, there'd be a huge university budget crisis. No, you're absolutely right. And and this event certainly underscores the the question uh, that I'm sure will be a recurring theme on this podcast of the conditions under which Canada has or doesn't have any leverage when it comes to influencing certain diplomatic crises. Yeah, and we're not the only ones. Uh, other countries, too, are having diplomatic crises. You were in Sweden this summer. Tell us a little bit about the, the U.S.-Sweden uh, tensions over a rapper. Well, it's funny because, you know, we often worry about Canada's voice not being heard or Canada being ignored altogether, but I'm sure Scandinavian countries mm. the same way at times. But it's certainly not been the case this month. In August, both Sweden and Denmark slash Greenland have been in the news. So first there was the whole saga with ASAP Rocky. And I don't know if you know ASAP Rocky, Steve, but he's an American rapper. And <laughs> was uh, jailed in Sweden on charges of assault after an altercation on the mean streets of Stockholm. And the whole incident was super well documented on Twitter and Instagram. And then it turned into a bizarre celebrity diplomacy event where Trump personally intervened via Twitter and I mean, that's not surprising in itself. And he asked the Swedish prime minister to free ASAP Rocky, and it even became a hashtag. Trump's intervention in ASAP Rocky's case didn't seem to speed things up. He spent several weeks in jail and then eventually returned a few weeks ago on a suspended sentence. I wonder why this got the attention that it got and why Trump felt like he had to personally intervene. Uh, Apparently, it's Kanye West and Kim Kardashian that urged him to do so. Even Justin Bieber got involved at some point. So that's the whole ASAP Rocky thing uh, that I was following. Uh, Steve, were you tracking this story as well? Uh, I wasn't really paying that much attention to it. Actually, one of the interesting things is Kim Kardashian has, has really started playing a role in a larger 
issue of mass incarceration and trying to deal with how to improve the plight of prisoners. I, I ran into this because uh, Mark Howard, a professor at the University of Maryland, I want to say, is a Facebook friend. And suddenly he, he has Kim Kardashian pictures because he also has been involved in dealing with uh, this issue of, of how to improve the, of the plight of American prisoners and how to reduce the number of people in prison. And suddenly he's in the same pictures as Kim Kardashian. So worlds are colliding in all kinds of ways. And the strange thing about that is other worlds have collided, which is that Trump is not only interested in Sweden, but also interested in what he probably isn't aware of, that it involves Denmark, but his fixation on Greenland, that it's come out that occasionally, frequently apparently, Trump thinks about whether the United States can buy Greenland. Your thoughts on that? Well, it might not be surprising because Greenland is the biggest or hugest island in the world. So that's why Trump wants it. I mean, the, the Americans have in the past eyed Greenland. Their efforts going back to sort of the same time that the United States bought Alaska from the Russians, it was eyeing Greenland. But there's a couple of complications. One is things have changed over the past uh, 150 years. Uh, Stacy Goddard had a really good piece in the in Monkey Cage on the, the Washington Post explaining how it used to be very easy for countries to trade land, but as as self-determination developed and as people developed identification with territories, it's much harder to trade lands or sell lands because you're also selling people. And it's pretty clear that uh, inhabitants of Greenland, who are mostly uh, First Nations, would not be all that enthralled with being part of the United States, particularly under this presidency. And they might actually get to have a vote on this. In fact, the last time this something like this came up, the Danes said that there would be a plebiscite. And that means that it wouldn't go very far. And the last time this happened was in the 50s? Yeah, I think so. There were some discussions in the aftermath of the Cold War, uh, uh, not during the Cold War, that would be handy. And instead, the solution that happened then and happens most of the time is, is not that countries buy land, but they lease it. That way, the country that's leasing the land can claim that they've never given up sovereignty. They could always revoke the lease or the lease will end. Uh, and the people are not essentially being sold to another country, but instead it's just a, a basing issue. So the United States has bases in Greenland. It doesn't need to <laughs> occupy Greenland. No, you're right. And um, I'm, I'm sure we'll see more twists and turns to the story when President Trump visits Copenhagen and Denmark's prime minister did respond formally to, to the tweets and to the brouhaha this created by saying that Greenland is an autonomous Danish territory and it belongs to Greenland. Greenland belongs to Greenland. It's not Danish. Really? Okay. So again, this allows the Danes to sort of distance this without directly dunking on Trump, although I'm sure in the social media escape and also in the popular media in, in Denmark, I'm sure they're having a lot of fun with this. Yeah, and, and Denmark in the end is, is responsible for the foreign and defense policy matters, uh, just not the domestic matters. I, I, the thing is, this the question is how much, how much to take this seriously. Dan Dresner had a post uh, today. We're taping this on a Monday. Uh, he had a post today in the Washington Post on forget Greenland. Let's take have the United States take over Canada. So we now have to deal with that again. Every how often we have to deal with this notion of United States and Canada conquest and all, or buying or whatever. Yeah, no, don't draw attention to Canada. We're just trying to keep a low profile and wait the end of President Trump's term. Well, and that was my point of view. I was asked last week uh, about NORAD by the CBC because we there's now a, an effort to discuss how to retool NORAD for the 21st century that uh, all of our electronic distant 
warning sites are dated and need to be updated. And so there's ongoing discussions between the Canadian military and the American military about what needs to be done. And, and my first response to this is don't talk about it now. You don't want anything uh, to get on Trump's radar screen. He'll certainly try to push Canada pain more. And this is really expensive, right? Yeah, I heard that updating the radar system can cost up to $11 billion. And of course, this wasn't factored into the defense policies budget plan. And the agreement between Canada and the U.S. is that the cost-sharing equation is 40% Canada, 60% U.S. So it's foreseeable that Trump might want to revisit the terms of this agreement. Yeah, and I think that going from 40% to 50% would not that be that much of a burden for Canada, but going from 40% to, I don't know, 100% certainly would be. Uh, and I'm sure that would be his starting point for the negotiations. This is on your land. You should do it. <laughs> well, we'll have to invite uh, Andrea Sharon to the show so that she can give us all of the details. Yes, I, I, I would uh, see to her. All She is the expert on, on, on NORAD, so it'd be good to have her on board. I guess we could turn now to some of the questions we got from the internet, uh, which was a vague reference to our producer, Melissa Jennings, who has been giving us some really good questions. As fellow academics, we looked to the end of August with both enthusiasm and I'm not sure regret, uh, but the end of August means the end of summer and the beginning of a new starting term. So we were asked, what are the best and worst things about starting a new academic term? Well, I like the excitement. I like the excitement of a new start. I've always looked forward to September as a child, and this hasn't changed now that I'm an adult. And I think it's fair to say that academics don't make resolutions in January. We make them in August and then break <laughs> yeah, it's too late. We have one week left and then yeah. we start to make our reg- uh, resolutions way late in the game. The best part for me is the excitement. And the worst part for me is updating a course syllabus. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I look at student evaluations and when it comes to what to change or what to improve, the suggestions are all over the place. I'm not getting any clear guidance from the student evaluations. And I have the tendency to want to update the reading list so that it includes new stuff I want to force myself to read over the year. And I usually change 50% of my reading list and I regret it later systematically. So I've been told that you should only change 10 to 20% of your reading list every year. And, And I wanted to ask for your advice on this. I think that's good advice. I think radically revising the syllabus every year is is not necessarily good for you, and it's not necessarily good for the students either. I mean, the, the joy of being a, doing international relations is that we do have to update what we say. Uh, it's not like some other disciplines where you have to go through calculus from beginning to end and you don't have to incorporate new things. Our world is constantly changing. And so for me, I, I tend to update my lectures with new references, but I don't update the readings as dramatically. Uh, so I'd say, yes, 10 to 20% makes sense. Cause if you suddenly are changing 50% of your readings, you're going to fall behind and that's gonna put a lot of pressure on you. And that's, that's ultimately not going to work that well for the class. Uh, for me, what I like best about the new academic term is it's a new bunch of students. What's nice about our job is we're constantly having changes of pace. And so I'm not going to say that students get stale, uh, that at the end of a semester, they smell like riding fish. That would be wrong. But I do think that what's nice is you get a new batch of students every every three or four months, and that re- their energy, their, meeting new people, learning about their new experiences, getting their perspectives, getting new chemistry 
is a way to keep, if not young, I'm not young. It allows me to keep fresh. And, and I really, really like that part. So I'd say the new batch of students is the best thing. Uh, the worst thing is, well, you have to establish a new bout rhythm, Steph. You know, we spent the whole summer, you know, not having to worry about showing up for office hours, not having to come to class, not having to prepare for class. And it's just a, a matter of just changing the rhythm and being having to focus more on the teaching end of things. Our summers are certainly not off, but they are more relaxing in terms of being able to, to be much more flexible about one's schedule. And, and once you have classes to teach, uh, then you have to start looking at schedules and figuring out where things fit in. On the bright side, it'll discipline me more to show up, to wear pants, things like that. To wear pants. Mm, okay. <laughs> Well, my summer objective is never to wear pants, to only wear shorts. One of the downsides of being the director of the CDSN is I have a lot more meetings where I have to get up dressed in suits and ties and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So summer's nice, usually for avoiding that. And then once yeah. school starts, I have to, you know, dress up nice. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, it's not that I walk around without any pants. I'm not Donald Duck. All right. So New Year and every year the students seem to be the same age, but we just get older, right? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. So we were also asked, what would be the one book in defense and secu or security that you think every Canadian should read? I guess I don't have one book, but a group of authors who write books. You should just say mine. Come on, quickly. <laughs> Either self-promote or promote me. One of the two. But... Yeah. All right. Uh, we're, we won't do any shameless self-promotion in, in the answer to this question. In fact, it's, it should have been a rule from the outset. So the books written by Kim Nossel, Stéphane Roussel, and Stéphane Paquin, I think, are a really good group of books to recommend to folks who want to improve their understanding of security and defense issues. Just because I think it's tempting to go from, from one flashy topic to another, whether it's uh, procurement or operations, but it's really important to understand how the system works. And these books do a good job at explaining how Canadian foreign and defense policy is made, how it's implemented, what are some of the constraints that Canada faces. And what I really love also is that the material is available in both French and English. So that's a big plus. What about you? Um, I think I'll use a similar name. Uh, I've been rereading the Nassel Boucher book on Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's a really good book because it, it's pretty scathing about the state of Canadian politics. And it's, and it's pretty even-handed in terms of the habits that both liberals and conservatives get into. And while I don't think most Canadians vote, uh, you know, won't be voting in October based on foreign policy, it sure is hell the case that politicians think they do and that they constantly are making decisions based on the domestic political fights between the conservatives and the liberals. Sometimes the NDP chimes in. And so this book does a really good job of talking about the most important Canadian defense policy of our generation, if not of generations, which was the, the wars in Afghanistan, and does a really excellent job of, of talking about how it was entirely the politics of it back home that shaped the decisions both in Afghanistan and back in Ottawa. So I think that'd be the first one I'd recommend. So that's uh, your mandatory reading. And I, I should also mention, since you mentioned uh, that book by Nossel and Boucher, that it was shortlisted for a Best Book Award at the Canadian Political Science Association this year. Excellent. <laughs> in addition to those books that we recommended, I'd also recommend Open Canada. Now, that is sort of self-promotional because Open Canada is a partner of the CDSN, but OpenCanada.org is a great online portal. It has a lot of good essays about Canada's role in the world. That's its basic mission, and hopefully we'll be sending stuff from the CDSN to Open Canada to be published there. But even when it's not our stuff, it's still really good. So I'd put in a plug for that. Okay, Stephanie, I think we're going to wrap that up. Thanks again, Steph. We'll be talking to you in two weeks. Good talking to you, Steve. I'll uh, see you soon.
My name is Alex Salt. I'm currently a PhD candidate with the University of Calgary's Center for Military, Security, and Strategic Studies, as well as a political science instructor at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us on Battle Rhythm, Alex. It's my pleasure. So tell me what you're working on for your doctoral dissertation. So my research asks the question, basically, to what extent has the battlefield experience of the U.S. military influenced post-war organizational change? Failing to understand the lessons of war can cause militaries to repeat past failures, leading to increased costs in terms of resources and casualties in future conflicts. There is a strong need to learn the lessons of their experiences if they are to, to succeed in those future conflicts. We need to look beyond the views of senior leadership and develop a more nuanced understanding of the field experiences of lower ranked officers, even if those views challenge the traditional perspectives of the military. So the various service branches of the U.S. military have needed to adapt at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels of war. However, what remains to be really understood at a deeper level is, more importantly, how such wartime uh, changes and so-called lessons learned during military operations were actually learned. To answer that question using primarily archival research, I explore whether the major battlefield adaptations of the U.S. military of each service branch of the military during the Second World War influenced the process of organizational change from the end of that conflict, basically up into the shadow of the Vietnam War. Military organizational change is a relatively small yet rich field of multidisciplinary study. The field, however, could basically be subdivided into, in my view, two broader categories. The first being innovation, which is larger scale and occurs in peacetime and basically impacts a military service's goals, strategies, and force structures. In the literature, it's primarily conceptualized uh, via a top-down framework where the heavy emphasis is on senior military or civilian leaders as the central variable causing change. The second category of military change, as mentioned earlier, is adaptation, which occurs during wartime, but this can be varying scope and impact. And basically these two types of, or categories of change are, are similar, but they've yet to really be directly connected to one another at a theoretical level. So my dissertation basically looks to bridge that gap by primarily focusing on the role of junior and mid-ranking officers, something that's largely been overlooked. Because as I've sort of come to, come to understand, these officers who, whose experience was mostly involved in actual combat, and thus they are the officers to have had to adapt in order to succeed during wartime. Basically, in other words, these junior and mid-ranking officers may well be the service personnel who saw firsthand the gaps or flaws in how their organization prepared to or did operate in actual combat. And further, it's this combat experience which gives them additional organizational credibility during the post-war period, and thus they can help to use that to institutionalize the lessons of their experience. In the post-war period, these officers will form information or advocacy networks to spread their experiences and as well are able via the chain of promotion to properly ensure their experiences shape the future direction of their service. Thank you. As I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking the size of the archival task must have been monumental. And you're just coming back from the National Archives mm -hmm. in Washington. Can you walk us through that process? Certainly. So I've conducted research at five archives, each of the primary service archives of the, of the United States military. So the Army War College, one in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the Air Force, one in Maxwell, Alabama, uh, Marine Corps, one in Quantico, Virginia, and the 
Naval One in Washington, D.C., as well as the National Archives in Washington. And it's a reasonably complex process. You know, you have to conduct a fair amount of research before you get to the archives. You have to do a lot of groundwork and con conversing with archi archivists ahead of time to sort of get a good idea of what the archives actually have. And then when you get there, you basically are facing, you know, you have a couple of weeks worth of time and you are facing thousands of potential documents to look through. So it's a bit of luck involved. Okay, so you're telling me you don't have a tan this summer? No, no, no. Uh, just a lot of time in extremely air-conditioned archives. <laughs> Great. And how did you get interested in the topic? Uh, did you spend some time in the military, or how did you come no, to the question? No, uh, no, I didn't, actually. Um, my interest in this basically started when I was a senior undergraduate student at Queen's University, where I began to, to read about the revolution in military affairs hypothesis, mm -hmm. which led to my master's uh, thesis, which looked at the relevancy of the, the RMA to counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. And writing this thesis, I began to think more about on this topic about, you know, what are actually the different types of change that militaries go through? And what are the potential linkages among them? Well, that's very good. You, if you were able to build on the research that you did for your master's and integrate that into your PhD work, that you have a leg up on the competition. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> And what about the next steps? Now, I'm not going to ask you when your dissertation is going to be done because you're just coming back from archives and that's a bit unpredictable, perhaps. But what are your next steps in terms of what you have to accomplish? And perhaps what do you think that you'd like to do after the PhD is done? So basically, I finished my theoretical framework and I'm now looking to knock out each one of my case study chapters on the Army, Air Force, Marine Corps and Navy. And once that's completed, I'm hoping to start a postdoctorate somewhere. I'm, I'm certainly looking to sort of stay in the academic world, but I like to say I'm a bit of a realist when it comes to the job market. So I'm certainly open to working in the government sector or private sector as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Battle Rhythm, and I look forward to reading more about your research. Thank you so much. I'm clinical associate professor at NYU's Center for Global Affairs. Uh, Chris Eggerson, welcome to Battle Rhythm, the podcast of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. You presented at the Kingston International Security Conference. What do you have to tell them? Um, I think following on a theme of a lot of the speakers, I was looking at you know, the, the conference theme of the international order and, and what about it. Looking at it specifically in terms of the Indo-Pacific and Canada's role therein, there are some who believe the international order is, is ruptured or rupturing or in, in danger of being that way. And yet there are others, I think, at the same time who believe that it has a certain elasticity and that it'll snap back after the Trump administration is finished, whether that's in a few years or, or a few more years, that it will re retain its, its, or go back to its previous way of working. I well, don't believe that either of those is actually the most likely in, in, the, in the medium term. I don't think that we're talking about a ruptured international order. I don't think we're talking about an elastic international order. I think we're talking about a plastic one. And by that, I mean is that it's not going to snap back. Some of the deformations that come out of the forces acting within the international order, new actors, changes in emphasis, um, different uh, interests clashing will leave a, if not permanent, then certainly persistent changes in that order. We're not likely to snap back to uh, some pre-existing uh, backup file, whether you want to call that pre-Trump 
or back to the 19th century or, or back to anything in particular, it's going to be something wholly new in the sense that it's not going to look like something in the past. There will be a, some elements which are you know, continuous or, or have continuity. There will be elements that are going to um, change in terms of style. But some of those deformations from the various things that are going on now are going to leave a, a permanent or semi-permanent mark moving forward. And that's what I mean by, by plastic. Let me jump in. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious. You, you say some things are going to change and some change and some things are, are not. Do you have any suggestions about what more, is more likely to be the more enduring features? Well, I think if you, in one sense, if you look at it from, from 30,000 feet, which some people tend to say, you know, nothing's changed. It's a world of states. States have different interests and we're going to see, uh, you know, conflict in that sense. And I think on one hand, that's eminently true. On the other hand, I think that that's actually doesn't tell us very much because if we take anything at that level of abstraction, we can see that there will be continuity. So yes, we were, we're not talking about a wholesale change in the way that we, uh, a paradigmatic or, or quantum shift that we're going to start looking at city-states or neo-medieval model. We're going to have a, an international order that's marked by predominantly you know, state-based uh, institutions, whether they are the states themselves or the, or the kinds of groupings and, and, and institutions and regimes that states make. So in that sense, there will be continuity. Um, I think what is likely to have changed, though, are some of the motivations and interests, in particular, the way that those are manifest. So China is a state that is not going to rely on Donald Trump to make its decisions for it. So whether or not Donald Trump is in the White House in 2025 uh, or not, uh, is going to, China has its own agenda, that it will stumble through, muddle through, uh, you know, race along uh, completely irrespective and independent of, of other actors. So in that sense, um, whatever gains that, that China makes in the, in the near term will have an impact. Some of them will, will continue. Some of them may be very um, uh, epiphenomenal. They achieve something in Delta Road Initiative and then just the decay of that system can't be maintained and it'll go back to something else. But there will be changes there that, that are happening regardless of what the rest of the international order uh, would, like, would like to see happen. Chris, are there notable changes with Trump's arrival in terms of U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific? Can you point to a few key developments? The, the framing of, the, of it as the free and open Indo-Pacific is, is an enormous, not just rhetorical issue, I think it actually does uh, recognize the existence of other actors outside of the United States, outside of just China. It's not just a duality that's acting out inside this kind of relatively you know, empty uh, arena. It certainly gives a role for, for India. Um, it's the the Pompeo um, infrastructure, $113 million injection, for example, is a, is a, is a change, is a very big one. But again, it's not the only game in town. The quality infrastructure projects from, from, from Japan, for example, are much more relevant in terms of how uh, that region is being shaped. So I think on one hand, and it's not fair to put this all on the Trump administration either. Some of the, 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 the changes clearly came before the Trump administration. Uh, and uh, some of them, for example, the, the pivot to Asia under, uh, under the Obama administration. Some of them are coming from uh, other countries that have nothing to do, as I said before, with, with what may or, may or may not be going on in the White House. But I think what, what my main focus was is what's the so what of that for Canada? Because at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, that was kind of my brief to, to look at is how do uh, middle powers like like Canada actually, uh, how are they going to work in this plastic environment? Um, the the first thing I would say is that uh, to an extent, 
um, and I think you can overplay this, but all security is ontological security. And the, the self-image that Canada has playing in the world, and, and, and certainly within the Indo-Pacific, is going to have a large, uh, uh, you know, a large role in determining what it's going to try to achieve. And to a, to a certain extent, the, the self-image of a, a middle power or a helpful fixer or an upholder of universal values uh, doesn't play very well in Asia. We don't have those uh, that role that we have you know, assigned ourselves largely through our experience uh, post-World War II in um, what, um, what Kim Nossel talks about as you know, the North Atlantic anchor. We, we, we played those out, developed some of those skills and those self-regarding uh, myths in that theater and they don't play out, they don't have that kind of resonance in, in Asia. They didn't have it then and they, and they don't have it now and they won't in the future. So there's no, there, there's no golden age for Canada in Asia to snap back to in that sense. So very much not a non-elastic future for, for Canada because we don't have that kind of experience. And, and Asia, uh, I think if you look at it, if you make generalizations, is not really looking fondly at any Justin come lately who's kind of showing up yeah. into, the, into the region and, and declaring themselves to be useful fixers in a place that, 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 that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't resonate with. As a matter of fact, many of the, the other middle powers, Japan, South Korea, to an, ex, to an extent, uh, uh, even India, see Canada in a very different light, different light than we see ourselves, and I think different lights than we may be seen in, in places like Europe. We can be seen as a competitor, we're seen as a bit player, we're seen as perhaps a, an American stooge, or, or, or there are lots of other roles that other people, other actors within the Indo-Pacific would, would put on us before we got to what we would see ourselves as. So I think that's a big difference for Canada in, in the Indo-Pacific that may or may not play out in, in, other, in other regions of the world. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was part of a group that was brought to Japan, a bunch of random academics, mostly right-wing, right-wing and me. And their message was that Canada did have a role in, in Asia. The Japanese wanted, A, for Canada to call out the Chinese whenever the Chinese violated their international order, which has become much easier the past year. Second, to help foster democratization in the places where Japan would be unwelcome to do so. And I want to remember what the third one was, but the basic idea was they found Canada to be a useful player, or wanted Canada to be a useful player. But whenever I look at Canada and Asia, I, I, I see something that, that you mentioned, which is there's sort of no natural role. So what you suggest should Canada try to do? Well, I think it brings me to a point that I made, which is that I think to an extent Canada has to be careful that it's not instrumentalized because the useful fixer rule uh, that it that we are quite happy to adopt, others are also happy to to ask us, force us uh, uh, into when it suits them. So, for example, if we look at the uh, recent American uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, it talks about Canada being uh, uh, having a viable role in upholding freedom of navigation and, and upholding the rule of international law in the region. Uh, same with the Japanese. From time to time, rather than them having to take that burden, they would like someone else. And I think that, in that sense, an analog could be us, it could be Australians, it could be could, could be somebody else to, to do that. But we have to be careful. Is that really serving our national interest? Or are we then, in some sense, an ersatz helpful fixer? We're a helpful fixer for someone else's agenda, but maybe not even able to play it to, to the fullest that, that case um, you know I don't know if we ever had the magic powers that we would <laughs> like to kind of tell ourselves that we did that somehow it's baked into the, to the DNA etc but um, now serving as the uh, uh, foreign minister of, of India it, 
Minister Jay Shankar said, you know, the alliances are so 20th century that alliances are not going to be uh, have the same power in, in the Indo-Pacific in the, in the 21st century. And I think in that sense, Canada finds itself quite alone in that sense. If we're if we're not going to be if we're representing a multilateral universal order that, that may or may not exist, um, where do we find ourselves? Either as someone's pawn in the Indo-Pacific, so providing, you know, as you said, rhetorical support for human rights, whether it's from the Japanese or to assist, to kind of continue to put pressure on China from the from the Americans. Um, I think that's a very limited role, and it's one that we really have to ask ourselves: is is it in our interest to be to, to be playing those kinds of roles? Because to be honest, we're doing so little in the region. When you look militarily, um, if you look on the uh, operations kind of map from the Canadian Armed Forces, mm -hmm. we're really talking uh, less than token efforts in, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Um, we're looking at um, you know the DART deployed in 2015 to Nepal, and looking at the tsunami response in 2004. We've had a few. Um, North Korean sanction single ship or single aircraft contributions, mm -hmm. but again, those tend to be fairly episodic, six mm -hmm. months at a, at a time. We're not really talking about a very large presence that we would necessarily have money in the bank to build up the kind of credibility mm -hmm. where a scolding from Canada would mean something to China. And I think we've seen the way we've been instrumentalized, perhaps by the Americans, to take on the role that we have with, with, with Huawei, for example, um, doing someone else's dirty work if, if that's one way of looking at it and uh, uh, has not really you know given us any kind of advantage and, and it remains to be seen whether the Americans will use that as a bargaining chip uh, for to their advantage and I'm not sure that we'll be necessarily you know front front in, uh, of their mind in terms of how this is going to play out. Uh, you've done a lot of work on uh, Canadian civil military cooperation. Can you tell us what Canada does well versus poorly in this area? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I think civil military cooperation is a is a strange uh, animal in a way, and I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, on one hand, the moment of civil military cooperation is probably over uh, for for a while anyway, to the extent that stability operations and the kinds of places where we find these kinds of activities happening, I think are not necessarily on anybody's uh, let's get involved in those quickly again list. But the accusation largely is that any kind of operation that looks at civil military cooperation, and by that we mean military and civilians cooperating in, a, in either post-conflict space or in, on, in about, on a battlefield in order to deal with things like civil affairs, deal with mm -hmm. things like development or humanitarian assistance, um, they're accused often of being ad hoc affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think my, the big surprising find, finding from my research was that actually the way Canada does them, they're not ad hoc, they're ad lib. And it it's perhaps sounds semantic, but an ad hoc solution would be great because it's to the situation. It's tailored to the, the particular set of circumstances that one would find oneself in. And actually, in that sense, the kinds of things that civil military cooperation uh, you know, is used for, disaster response, humanitarian mm -hmm. assistance, actually ad hoc would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, by ad lib, I mean it actually is left up to the personal desires and preferences of the commander on the ground, uh, largely, whether that's in Afghanistan, whether that was in the Balkans, uh, Bosnia, or Kosovo, we actually saw much more consistent, in, in the sense that it worked for me last time, mm -hmm. even though it was in a different set of circumstances, I'm going to do it again here. Mm -hmm. And that was, the, I think, a, a surprising uh, finding in the sense that it's absolutely not ad hoc, it's, it's, it's something different uh, altogether. And the, the, I think the reason that explains that is, um, 
or certainly how I explained it was that CIMIC, civil military cooperation, is a very Clausewitzian practice in Canada. Uh, and it's it's done because of the particular way, and I think um, Canadians have a particular way, like like every country has a particular way, of organizing those Clausewitzes to Trinities. So the government provides direction, as mm -hmm. we would expect, but that direction is very ambiguous. The ambig ambiguity is things like, go over there and make sure that the Serbs and the Croats get along, mm -hmm. or do you know take efforts to to help with economic development. It's not particularly clear direction, and, and it leaves a, a fair amount of uh, uh, space. Similarly, the people, according to Clausewitz, bring passion to the table, but in these kinds of operations, the passion is very ambivalent. Canadians would like their military to do good or um, hit some kind of high notes like opening schools or digging wells. Again, it's, it's not a very strong and, and, and vociferous passion that the people bring, again, allowing for, for some space. And the military is meant to bring skill in the arena of chance. Uh, that's their contribution, Clausewitz would tell us. But I found that in, in Canada, we have a bit of a, a, a bifurcated response in the military. At an institutional level, the, the military is very ambitious. And they use CIMIC as a way, essentially, of, of uh, maintaining legitimacy and using that legitimacy to uh, get other things on their shopping list, whether it is armored vehicles, um, whether it's uh, strategic airlift capability, they will do civic operations as a way of kind of uh, placating the, the government, keeping the people at home happy, and then they, they use that usually as a, as a way of um, uh, getting other things, other institutional goals achieved. And at the individual level, that means um, it is often left to them to decide out of this ambiguity, ambivalence, and, and ambition for them to kind of figure out their, on their own what it is they're going to do in terms of civil, civil military cooperation. Not a lot of doctrines written on this. The idea that somehow, you know, a, a, a captain or a major or a, or a sergeant will somehow know how to mm. lead to a democratization uh, mission or allow for the reconstruction of political institutions in a place like Afghanistan. This is very much done on, you know, high school civics uh, understandings from, you know, from 30 years ago rather than following a, a very clear institutional, either governmental or, uh, or, or military kind of recipe. So it's very much left to the, the desires of, of the individual commanders to make this work on the ground. Well, that's interesting because the story that Canada tells itself, although it's now buried because the government decided to archive the engaging Afghanistan website, because one needs to archive websites, it's a very strange concept to me. But what they did do was have six priorities and three signature projects and all the rest of it with a whole of government enterprise. The, we have at this conference uh, Ben Roswell, who was a rock, the senior representative of Canada in Kandahar. And the whole idea was to synchronize a coordinated effort. And so it seems like it was all from Ottawa down to the folks in the field. So it would be continued beyond each general's or right. colonel's rotation. But you're suggesting something very different. Well, that's certainly that was certainly the rhetorical effort at, after a while, right? Mm -hmm. After 2011 and the and the manly kind of uh, mid-course correction mm -hmm. uh, undertaken, that there there was this need to uh, to do that. Two two things to say about that. One is uh, that was essentially a wet finger in the air idea that there would be signature projects. It was not founded on any particular development uh, understanding. It wasn't done in a 
from a uh, position of, of theory. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, some fascinating work done by uh, American academic Ben Shapiro mm -hmm. in his book, um, Big Data, Small Wars, said exactly the opposite. Actually, large projects actually give you the least bang for buck when it comes to the security effectiveness. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use CIMIC as a tool for pacification and stability, you actually want lots of small projects rather than big ones like fixing you know, gigantic water uh, treatment plants or, or uh, hydroelectric dams. It's very difficult to, to wring the kind of benefits out of that. So the point would be first, that direction that did come was, was very, again, uh, pulled out of thin air. The second thing was, as long as the commander on the ground doesn't violate the kind of left and right of mm -hmm. arc, which is to say, do well, be visible, spend Canadian money, um, whether it's getting girls to school or you know water purification or, or whatever the particular issue is, there's a lot of latitude as long as you don't kind of step outside those boundaries. And you see you see within that a lot of oscillation um, from one commander saying, "I believe we should be looking at economic development." Six months later, uh, without as long as they don't you know violate uh, too far, they can switch the emphasis uh, to, "No, we're going to look at infrastructure development instead of economic." So there, there is a lot of, of change within that activity. And it's a movable feast. If, if <laughs> the, re the research that I looked at went from you know, 99 in Kosovo through the mid-2000s in Bosnia to uh, the, 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 the relatively the same period in Afghanistan. And we see that these are changing um, not according to a particular you know, grand strategy or, or large piece, which I think was interesting because it, it allowed me to see that Again, and it almost gets back to what I what I mentioned in the in the Asia piece earlier, which is that we have these national myths. Uh, they serve as this backdrop that allow for that legitimacy to be played out. So as long as we are conforming to this vision of our soldiers do good overseas, anything goes within that in that sense. Uh, however, we define that what does good look like? It, that's a secondary order issue. Our soldiers go to mm -hmm. Afghanistan or Bosnia to you know, to do good in, in the world. That's kind of as long as that's taken care of, there's, there's not much else that matters. Just questions? a quick question, because you have that comparative case study in your book, which I'll plug. It's called mm -hmm. The Politics of Civil-Military Cooperation, Canada and Bosnia, Kosovo and Afghanistan. Can you give us quick examples of what CIMIC activities look like in each context for our listeners? Sure. So Kosovo 1999, uh, when the Yugoslav uh, authorities, largely Serb, left, they left a a, a vacuum in terms of what we would call public services. Garbage collection, issuing of marriage certificates, the running of power mills, a lot of the kind of technocratic uh, personnel that were in Kosovo uh, left uh, you know, shortly after the, the, the NATO campaign, which meant that when the military showed up, they had to you know, get the tr literally get the trains back running and, and British engineers were providing the opportunity for uh, trains to get back on, on track. We saw Canadian soldiers doing um, winterizing collective shelters like community halls and schools. If you go to Bosnia, I think by the time I was there doing the research, it was Roto 15. This was very much a mature mission. We were talking much more here about how do we incentivize good behavior out of recalcitrant mayors, for example. Mm -hmm. So CIMIC would be used to say, if you cooperate with the Dayton Accord or the, the ideas the international community has put out there, then we are going to uh, you know, make sure that you're rewarded in some way with a, a job development program uh, mm -hmm. or a 
electrification of a particular village. So used in a very in a, in a very different way at the at the macro level, but the micro projects are very very similar. People are saying, well, this is the way we did it last time. Let's do it this way. Partly, the the feeling was, or the idea at the army level was that hey, we should tap reservists for this because mm -hmm. it's something they're good at. If you're an electrician in you know city life, you can come and be an electrician uh, in the army life. That never really panned out. We, there was never enough uptake mm -hmm. of of these so-called you know uh, trades people that mm -hmm. would come over and be, and be able to do that. So it was again, um, you know, hey, you. Uh, you're working on the you know the, the 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 chicken farm electrification project. Go figure it out. A lot of kind of project management, uh, connecting with partners in Kosovo, for example, over seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of CEDA money was essentially delegated to the battle group on the ground to to do these kinds of projects. CEDA found it quite useful to have a reliable partner that wasn't going to take the money and run. Mm -hmm. Very low overhead. The military didn't take any administrative mm -hmm. fee off this. They were just able to turn almost all of that money into roofs, uh, heaters, uh, mm -hmm. you know, schools. So those are, those are some examples. When you get to Afghanistan, um, it changes slightly. It, again, in, in some ways, ad hoc. So drilling of wells, for example, becomes a, a big issue to the point where water drilling equipment from uh, from from Alberta was actually civilian water drilling equipment was actually uh, taken uh, over to uh, Afghanistan in the attempt to, to 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 drill wells. Now, there were some sad uh, lessons learned along the way about how you drain aquifers and alkali kind of material again. In, done in a very amateur, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but in a very amateur sense that these soldiers are, are trying to do a task for which they, they really don't know the best practices mm -hmm. that would, you would expect out of a development activity or humanitarian assistance activity. So in that sense, it, it never really becomes very much more than a cottage industry of, of projects, project for this, a project mm -hmm. for that, a project for something else, rather than actually coming out of a doctrinal approach to say, this is what we need to do. So um, there was some experimentation within each theater. Do you use it as uh, an intelligence gathering mechanism or not? So in Afghanistan, uh, in the very early days when they were still up in, um, in, in, um, in Kabul, the idea that you send along an intelligence, a human, a human intelligence gathering person with these projects so that while you're kind of, you know, shared, you know, roll up your sleeves and let's dig this uh, drainage ditch, perhaps you can use that as a way of not only passing messages to say don't join the Taliban, but you can also extract information from those workers. That was pretty episodic, whether or not that worked or not was kind of left, again, this is another example of where one commander might think that's a good idea, another commander might think that it's not a good idea, and it would, would kind of change as, as, as it went through. This has been really very, very, very interesting, uh, particularly since I, I used to work on Afghanistan a little bit, mostly on the NATO side, but the, the really good, interesting at the ground uh, realities of this. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. There is so much that annoys me about the American gun debate, but I just want to focus on two elements the insult to logic and the myths about Americans. First, the arguments the pro-gun folks have that has gotten so thin that they rely on the dumbest of excuses for why these mass shootings happen. This last round, and yes, we have so many rounds of this that I could say the last round and there'll be another round. Anyhow, 
The excuse is focused on video games, the internet, and mental illness. This is an insult to logic because of something we teach in the very first social science class. You cannot explain something that varies with something that is a constant. There are video games, violent ones all over the world, yet extreme gun violence is an American thing. The internet is is everywhere, but extreme gun violence is American. Same goes for mental illness, although one could argue that American healthcare is worse for the mentally ill. But those folks who tend to make these arguments tend not to be fans of national healthcare either. Which, of course, raises the reality that these folks are insincere, that they, we should not credit them with much faith in their arguments. Now, we might say that there's white supremacy in the United States, and that helps to explain this level of gun violence. Partially, perhaps, especially the specific shooters of late. But I'm pretty sure that we could find evidence that white supremacy is something that has varied over time. It has gotten worse lately in the United States. And yet gun violence has been pretty consistent. Plus, yes, there is also white supremacy or white nationalism pretty much in Europe and North America, and yet gun violence is still very much an American thing. So why not have more serious gun regulation? While the outsiders might think that this is American culture, that we're a cowboy country, that everyone owns guns in the United States, or that more Americans own guns than those that do not. After all, there's something like 400 million guns owned in the United States. Well, it turns out that's not that each person owns two guns or one and a quarter guns. It's that 42% of Americans own all the guns, and 58% of the Americans have no guns. Significant majorities of Americans, including majorities of gun owners, now favor significant gun control measures. Alas, democracy is not perfect, and American democracy is designed to empower smaller groups in a variety of ways, and many of these ways are actually positive ways. People will blame gerrymandering, but it's really federalism that's responsible for this, because it, it, it enhances the power of rural states via the Senate. And rural states tend to have more gun owners, and thus politicians have, are more inclined to oppose gun control. One of those rural senators happens to be Bernie Sanders, who has long opposed gun control. He's only started to push for it lately when he's seeking voters of people who are not in Vermont, but the rest of the country, particularly Democratic base. And a lot of this is about the base, about who shows up at elections. And people tend not to vote for gun control, but there are plenty of people who vote against gun control. But even if gun owners favor some gun control, why is there no gun control in the United States? Well, there's something called the Iron Law of Oligarchy, a basic fundamental uh, argument in, so in political science, in the social sciences, that all organizations eventually develop tendencies where those at the top develop their own interests, uh, even at the expense of their own members. And if we've seen this past year that there's been many news stories about the spending patterns of the top folks of the National Rifle Association, and yes, who they get their money from suggests that the NRA no longer represents the average gun owner. It represents gun makers, it increasingly represents Russia, and it represents the interests of the folks at the top of the organization. Its power is waning, but it's still significant. But it's interesting, because they've made the mistake of really leaning hard on the GOP, on the Republicans. In the past, they gave their money pretty evenly to both parties, but now they're betting heavily that the Republicans can stay in office, which means that if and when the Democrats come into power, you might just see some real gun control, which, of course, will then get gutted by the Supreme Court due to the folks Trump's been able to appoint over the past couple of years. As always, the lesson in the United States is not just vote, but don't waste your vote on third parties. And I guess that's really my peeve for the week. Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.